Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7. And considering the way home. John, chapter 14, verse 5, give attention to God's holy word. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and exalt you. And we come now, O Lord, to this time of preaching, asking you, you would cause us to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and that as Paul prayed, we might be strengthened to bear up under the weight of glory that you reveal in your Son. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, if you are part of a family that is a little bit larger than the average American family and you have to travel, you may have done what I've had to do on several occasions. Hotel rooms are out of the question. They're too small and there's usually only two beds. And so what we have to do is get an Airbnb. Now, the Airbnb app and the system they've set up is very intriguing. It's very convenient. It's actually a much better way to travel, I think. But sometimes when you get an Airbnb, as is obvious, it's not your home. And you go to this Airbnb and you realize there's certain quirks about this home that you're not aware of. Some of these quirks might just be that that's a very fancy coffee maker or not a nice coffee maker. You might remark and say, wow, that's a beautiful bathtub, or I wish they had cleaned this bathtub. Some of the quirks are curiosities and inconveniences. Other quirks, however, are much more serious. One time I took my wife to an Airbnb in Tampa, Florida, and we got to the Airbnb and we could not get the door open. And we just couldn't get this thing open. And so we're trying to get it open. I have my wife. It was one of the first vacations we had to take, we, we got to take after we became parents. And we're just sitting there in a Tampa, Florida parking lot without getting into the Airbnb. And so what do you do? We have to call the owner. You see, the owner, because it's his house, knows all the quirks. Perhaps you've, you've been in a house that you weren't locked out of, but you, you tried to go through the front door and for some reason, this thing won't open. And then the owner of the house comes and shows you that, oh, there's a trick to it. You, you have to turn and pull and lift and then open the door. Perhaps you've tried to open doors like that before. I hope you get the point, though, that the owner of the house, the one who knows the house, knows all the quirks. And because he knows the quirks, he's the only one that's able to get you in the house, especially if you're locked out. Well, likewise, in this passage, Christ teaches us the way home. 
He teaches us the way to get to the Father, and he says that he himself is the only way to the Father. But there's more here than simply asserting that he's the only way. He says that he is the only way to the Father because he is the only one that knows the Father. And so in this passage, we're going to learn that Christ is the only way to the Father because he is the only one that knows the Father. There's two things in this passage, a very short passage, a very simple outline. In verse 5, we have confusion. Thomas is rattling on the doorknob. He doesn't know how to get in. There's confusion. And then in verses 6 and 7, there's clarification. Confusion and clarification. And so we begin in verse 5 with Thomas's confusion. You'll notice that as Thomas asks this question, he says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Notice that Thomas's question is, is more about the way to get where Christ is going rather than where he is going. You see the logical connection between his statement. We don't know where you're going, so therefore, how can we possibly know the way is another way to understand what Thomas is saying here. Now, there's an important observation to notice from Thomas's question, and it's simply this. The way, the right way, is determined by the goal you're seeking to accomplish. The way that you get to the Father's house is determined by the character of the Father's house. You see, the destination determines the pathway. John Calvin says, commenting on this passage, before we enter a road, we must know where we intend to go. What this means for us is that the goal or the, the destination and the way are intimately connected just as means and ends are connected. Now, I hope you, you understand what I mean by this, that means and ends are related to one another. They, in fact, define one another in very important ways. You know, our, our, uh, our playground company, uh, diligently working to, to put this playground together, and they had a goal in mind. They want to get this playground in the ground, and they want us to be able to enjoy it. But what ended up happening was they were sent the wrong manual. They had the wrong means. And so they couldn't accomplish the end that they wanted to achieve. Likewise, in this passage, the way is a means to achieving the end. There are many who err in spirituality, in religion. There are many who err on this very point. We can err either to the left or to the right. On the one hand, we may be seeking the one true and living God. We may want to reach the Father's house, but we're seeking it in the wrong way. Likewise, there are many who walk the Christian path. There are many who uh, confess Christ and seek to follow and live for Him, but they're seeking the wrong end. They're seeking the wrong destination. They might be seeking wealth or popularity or a good esteem among their neighbors, 
And so they live the Christian life, but they're not seeking to get to the Father's house. And so we can err on both sides of this. It's very easy to err in this area. We have to keep this in mind, and I think Thomas has this in mind. To achieve the spiritual blessing of heaven, we must walk the spiritual way. The only way to achieve entrance in the Father's house is to walk on the path that He has appointed. You know, Christ warns us about this in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Turn with me to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He is teaching the people. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, I think what Christ is teaching here, he's not making a statement about the absolute number of people who are going to be saved. That's not the point here. The point that he's making is that the way to eternal life is harder than you think it is. The way to heaven requires more strength than you think it does. The road to glory is more difficult than we in our pride might think it is. And he's warning us, enter by the narrow gate, because wide is the path that leads to destruction. And so Thomas is confused. He, he asks this question, and so our Lord Jesus Christ gives him clarification. He does this in the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. The first thing I want you to notice is Christ's compassion with Thomas. Look at how Christ handles him. But keep in mind, though, that, that Thomas has just contradicted the Lord himself. Verse 4, Christ says, you know where I'm going and you know the way. And then Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? He's contradicting his Lord. He's contradicting the one that they all have confessed is the Christ, the Son of God. Christ answers him very compassionately. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him. He understands that he's confused. And he understands that Thomas's heart, just like all the other hearts in this room, are troubled. Remember how John 14 begins. Let not your hearts be troubled. Thomas's confusion is, is uh, it arises not so much from the, the fact that he's ignorant. It arises from the fact that he's troubled. He's upset. The Lord that he loves is about to be taken away from him in the most gruesome manner imaginable. And Thomas is upset. He's confused. He's not thinking the right way. And so he asks this question, and Christ answers him. I like what J.C. Ryle has to say. He quotes another commentator, and he says, people who are in the situation that Thomas is in are like those who are searching for their wallet and their keys when they're in their pockets the whole time. You see, Thomas knows the answer to these questions. He's just confused and a little bit frantic. He's not sure what Christ is talking about, but it's in his pocket the whole time. Christ understands that, and so he answers him 
compassionately and plainly. Notice that Christ then gives us probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. This is probably hard to say which is the most well-known verse in the Bible. This has to be up in the top ten at least. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now it's very important at this point that we understand what Christ means by these three words. You know, just like when you're trying to get into the house, if you have the wrong key, I've done this before actually. When I was a uh, landscaper, cutting grass, we used to work in some rough neighborhoods and so the truck would be locked up while we were out doing our thing in the neighborhood. If you had to go back and get gas, you had to unlock the truck, open it, do your thing, lock it back up. And so we each had a key to the truck and I one day had to get more gas for the, uh, the string trimmer that I was using. I go back to the truck, I put the wrong key in the lock, and I stubbornly said, this has got to be the right key, snap, snapped it off right in the lock. So we had to call the owner and get them to come and fix the truck. Likewise, in this passage, Christ is giving us the key to heaven in what he has said. If we misunderstand the key, we'll misapply it. And we might snap it off in the lock and never enter in ourselves. There's a little bit of debate over how do we understand the way, the truth, and the life. And there's generally two views. The first view would be that Christ is describing a path, meaning that these are uh, stepping stones that we follow consecutively, that there's a progress in the Christian life. We begin to enter the way, and then we grow in the assurance of truth, and then we finally enter into eternal life. That's how John Calvin takes this passage, takes it as a progressive growth of the Christian life. The other way to take this is that these are three aspects or three features of the Christian life that we grow in at the same time. That true Christians lay hold of Christ as the way, they lay hold of Christ as the truth, and they lay hold of Christ as the life all at the same time as they walk the pathway to heaven. J.C. Ryle takes it that way. Now, of these two options, there's, there's actually a third form of how to understand this. And of course, if you've ever read Matthew Henry, he just combines both of them and says, let's look at them this way, then let's look at them that way. And he just says, they're both edifying. We'll look at them both ways. I think, I'm going to take Ryle's lead here. I think the way we understand this is three different aspects of the Christian life that we embrace all at the same time. It's not a progression. Christ is not describing our growth in grace. He's describing what someone who believes in Christ is like. And it's in these three key aspects of following Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And so first, we have to deal with the way. What does Christ mean by this? I am the way. I think what Christ means by this is that it is a, the, the term in the New Testament often refers to a manner of life, a lifestyle, a, a way of living, a life of good works and holiness. That's often what a way means. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, this gives good support to that interpretation because it's the same author. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, he writes this. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Key verse, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so I think at least the way John uses this idea, the way and walking on the way, refers to a lifestyle. Secondly, uh, so and even as John says here, to, to embrace Christ as the way means that we look at his manner of life and the way that he lived, and we live likewise the same way. We walk through life doing what Jesus Christ did. And what did Jesus Christ do? He did the will of his Father. He went about, as the apostles preached about him, he went about doing good and teaching the people. That's the way of life that Christ followed. He didn't live for himself. He didn't live for his own glory. He lived for the glory of his Father and the good of his neighbor. In essence, as John says here in this passage, Christ lived in obedience to the law. And so, that's the first thing Christ teaches us. The next thing he says is that he is also the truth. Now, I think what Christ means by this, the truth, is that we confess Christ as the ultimate store of wisdom and knowledge. He is truth itself. That Christ is the ultimate center of all human understanding and of all special revelation. Now, let me give a clarification here. I said he's the center of all human understanding. I'm not saying that all humans know Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that for mankind's knowledge, for mankind's mental process to work, he must confess Christ as the truth. Without Christ, man can know nothing. And so I think this is what is meant by Christ saying, I am the truth. We see reflections of this in Colossians 2.10. Paul the Apostle writes in Colossians 2.10. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through... This is uh, 2.8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, And further up in verse 2, Paul says, Paul prays that our hearts would be knit together, that we might know the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Likewise, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul writes these words. Starting in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And so to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate truth, to believe in him as the truth, means that we confess he is the truth. There is no other truth outside of Christ. Well, the last thing that Christ tells us is that he is the life. And I think what's meant here is the mystical union that we have with him by the Spirit, whereby we are enabled, we are empowered 
to walk in newness of life. When we confess that Christ is the life, we're confessing what some of the older authors meant when they said uh, Christianity is experiential. Now, we have to be very careful. We're, we're not saying Christianity is an experience that if you go to, say, an Airbnb next to Six Flags, you can have some cool experiences. That's not Christianity. But what we're saying is that true Christianity, when you are walking in union with Christ, you experience in your soul the power and the life of Christ. Christianity is not just doctrines in the air or creeds on the page. It is a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ says, I am the life. I think you see a reflection of this in Romans 6. Romans 6, Paul writes these words, speaking interestingly about the virtue of baptism. Romans 6, verse 4. Well, let's, starting at the beginning of of chapter 6, this is such a fantastic chapter. I commend it to your reading. Romans 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Notice the emphasis on life. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You see how Paul the Apostle describes our union with Christ. We died with him and we live with him. He is the life. Returning now to John 14, Christ gives clarification to Thomas. We don't know where we're going. How can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, based on the way I'm interpreting this and the way J.C. Ryle interprets this, there's an important implication here. What Christ is telling Thomas is that if you're going to arrive in the Father's house, If you're going to find a place in eternity forever, you have to embrace Christ in all three of these ways. Christ is all three of these things. And if you would open the door, you have to put the key all the way in. The way, the truth, and the life. Now this leads us to appreciate some of the errors related to these three things. First... Uh, Well, let me put it to you this way. The the error related to this would be emphasizing one of these things to the exclusion of the others. And so some might emphasize that Jesus is the way. Yeah, he is the way. And so I'm going to walk in the way that Christ walked. We call that legalism. The other uh, error here would be to say Jesus is the truth. He is the center of all doctrine and wisdom and knowledge, and he is the key to all the mysteries of the universe. We would call that uh, doctrinal Christianity. We're not saying doctrines are bad. We're saying if we emphasize doctrine to the exclusion of everything else, that won't get you to heaven. And then finally would be those that emphasize the life. I'm in communion with Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in me and I can feel his presence all around me. We call this charismatic Christianity. 
I think these are all errors related to this. Christ is all three of these things, and so we must believe in him and embrace him in all three of these aspects. You can't pick the one you like. You have to take all of them. Now, there's a danger for us as Reformed. The danger for the Reformed is usually a combination of the first two. Our temptation is to either emphasize the way of life or to emphasize the doctrines or some combination of those two. We say that, well, Christians are to be holy, so we've got to live according to the law. Amen and amen. Christians are people of the book, and God has revealed all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, and so we've got to have robust and deep doctrines. Amen and amen. But that's not all Christ is. You remember what he says to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2? The Ephesian church is very much like a Reformed church. The Ephesian church was doctrinally sound. Christ tells them that you were able to test false prophets and show them to be false. Right on. But then later on he says that I have something against you. You've departed from your first love. You're cold towards me. The, the fire of your life is growing dull. And so he says, repent and do the first works. That's the danger for us as Reformed Christians. And so it is in this manner, in this manner alone, by embracing Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, and being transformed by him in all three of these ways, growing in a lifestyle of holiness, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as truth, and growing in your communion with him through the means of grace, in these three ways alone do we reach the Father. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we in the way? Are we following the path that Christ has laid out for us? Do we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ? I trust if I asked all of you privately, all of you here would say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But let me encourage you. Do you embrace him in the full sense of what it means to embrace Christ? Do you embrace him as the way? Are you seeking to live a lifestyle after the pattern of Christ? Do you embrace him as the truth? Or do you think there are many different truths that are all equally true? Or do you embrace him in his living communion that he offers to you? It's interesting, isn't it? When he writes to the Ephesian church, he tells the Ephesians, I believe it's the Ephesians, let me check to make sure that I don't lead you down the wrong path. Revelation chapter 2, he writes to the Ephesians, and he says, uh, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I come to you quickly and remove your lamp from its place unless you repent. And then in verse 7, he gives a promise to the Ephesian church. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so do we embrace Christ in all three of these ways? Are we in the way? The scriptures are full of warnings to us. 
to take heed lest we fall. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul tells the Corinthians, Do you not know yourselves? Search yourselves and test yourselves to see if Christ indeed is in you. Hebrews 3.12, the author warns us, he says, Take heed to yourselves, lest there be a wicked heart of unbelief. 1 Corinthians 10.12-13, the apostle writes, And he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Brothers and sisters, Christ speaks very plainly here about the way to the Father. We can err in many different ways when it comes to thinking whether or not we are a Christian. Let me give you a little bit more pastoral guidance here. There are things that that I like to call um, heart clouds when it comes to topics like this. When it comes to searching our own hearts, sometimes our flesh can kick up all kinds of clouds so that we can't see clearly. And all these clouds fog up our vision. And so what we need to do is bring in the east wind, clear out the clouds, so that we can see clearly what's going on in our hearts. I think in this uh, passage, in this connection, one of the cloudiest things that can happen in our minds is to think a greater quantity of one will outweigh the lack of another. What do I mean by this? If we have a greater quantity of the truth, that will make up for our lack of life. Or if we have a greater quantity of life, that will make up for our lack of not walking in the way of Christ. I think you you get the picture. We can put whichever one we want on either side of the scale. This is a mistake for us to think this way. We do need truth, we do need life, and we do need to walk in the way with Christ. But you need all three of them. And so here's some practical application for you on this point. Whatever you're going through in your life, you probably need more communion with Christ. You probably need to pray with Him. You probably need more of that life and that mystical communion with Him. You don't need a book, probably. You you don't need to do more good deeds, probably. You probably need to sit before the Lord and commune with Him in His graces and through the power of the Spirit, and He will work on your heart and produce the things that you need to produce. Well, Christ, He gives this clarification, tells Thomas very plainly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then He gives the the ground for this, or the the theological reason for this. That's the next verse in verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. See, Christ has made this this, uh, very bold statement, I'm the only way to the Father. And now he makes good on his statement. He gives the reason for this. Say, it's a theological reason. I want you to notice first off what he's talking about. He, He just said, I'm the only way to the Father. He's not talking about his death on the cross. He's not talking about his holiness. 
He's not talking about his power. He's not even talking about his, his mediation as our great high priest. That's not what Christ is talking about here. What he is talking about is his unique relationship to the Father. Christ is highlighting his unique relation to the Father, and he's saying, in essence, if you'd known me, you would have known the Father also. He's saying, I am the only one that knows the Father. I am the only one that reveals the Father to you. I'm the only one who stands in this relationship to the Father. Are you knocking on the door to heaven? Christ is the only one who knows how to get in because heaven is the Father's house and Christ is the Son of that house. Christ says very much the same thing in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, he writes, uh, he, he, he prays to his Father. He says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. It says, even so it seemed good in your sight. And then he says, no man knows the Son except the Father, and no man knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And so what Christ is saying is that because of my unique relationship to the Father, I am the only way to the Father. This brings us into uh, a topic, it can be some, some pretty heady theology, and I think at this stage, we need to deal with some of this. I know it's late. I know it's a little muggy in this room, but stick with me. What Christ is speaking about here is what theologians will often call the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Let me give you some, some cash value for those words. Those are, those are pricey words. Ontological trinity means the trinity as it is. Economic trinity means trinity as it acts. Ontological means how the trinity is. Economic means how the trinity operates or acts. In the ontological trinity, in the trinity as it exists in itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal God Almighty. They are three infinite beings, equal in power and glory of the same substance. The Father eternally generates the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's how they've existed in all eternity. That's how they will always exist, world without end. That is the one true and living God. But, because the Trinity is the way that it is, the Trinity acts in the way that it acts. Only the Son could have taken human flesh and come down to us. The Father sent the Son. The Son accomplishes redemption and returns to the Father. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to apply redemption to us. This is how salvation works in all the operations of the Trinity. And what Christ is saying here is that I have come to reveal the Father. I'm the only one that can reveal the Father, and therefore, I'm the only way back to the Father. Now, let me just say this about that doctrine of the Trinity I went through. To be saved, 
you don't have to understand verse 7. What do I mean by that? I gave you a first grade level understanding of the Trinity. Compared to the glory of the Trinity, that was first grade ABC picture book understanding. Nobody fully comprehends what's going on between the Father and the Son. J.C. Rao comments on this verse and he says, this verse is almost impossible to explain because the relation he's talking about is so mysterious that the human mind can't comprehend this. And then he says, what it is important to know, however, is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe in the incarnate Son of God, you seek to live a life after his example, you confess him as the truth of God, and you have union and communion with him, you will be saved. You don't have to explain it. You have to believe it. And that's what Christ is telling Thomas here. Secondly, the second thing we learn from verse 7 If you want to know what God is really like, if you want to know what your heavenly Father is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, all the attributes of God are on full display. In the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the power, glory, justice, wisdom, love, compassion, mercy, everything about God the Father is on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would grow in your knowledge of God the Father, look at Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only he who knows the Father can bring us acceptably to the Father. Only one who knows what the Father is like can tell us how we arrive at the Father's house. Just as the owner of a house alone can show you the trick to open the front door or work the shower knobs... Only Christ alone can bring us to the Father. Christ being equal in power and glory of the same substance, God of God, light of light, is therefore the only one who can bring you to the Father's house, the soul's proper home. And he promises to all who believe in him that he will. Believe in him and you will make it home. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus who has come and revealed to us your glory. And we acknowledge that as Paul teaches us and as Christ even teaches us in this passage, if we see him, we have seen the Father. Oh, Lord, help our hearts to be settled and not troubled. Help our minds not to be confused. By the power of your Spirit, help us to see more and more of the glory of Christ. For in seeing him, we see you. And to see you is our heart's desire. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.